0: We're going to look at it in light of this question tonight. Sinners by birth or sinners by choice? Because we've probably all heard that that verse where David says, in sin my mother conceived me, right? And we're born with a sin nature. But we also see verses in the Bible that deal with our choices to sin, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says God picks people up and causes innocent people to do bad things. Because there are no innocent people. People, but it's not saying that God is the author of evil. So, what happens often when we begin to explain to people outside of Christianity about what the Bible says about original sin is they begin to think, well, if we're born with a sin nature, does that mean that we're not guilty for sinning? And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, but just just first here, I uh, will look at a couple of words. they are used in the Bible for sin. In the Greek New Testament, it would be uh, hamartia is the most common word. It's to act contrary to the will and law of God, to sin or to engage in wrongdoing. In the Hebrew Bible, over 600 times this word is used as ra'ah, which it refers to something that's evil or just plain old bad. And so if you've ever picked up a concordance for the Bible and looked up sin, concordance is an amazing way to study the Bible because it has a place of every uh, instance that that word is used. You will literally flip pages upon pages upon pages, and you will see S-I-N, S-I-N, over and over. So, it's pretty important to understand what it is and uh, and what to do about it. So, before we do that, we're going to kind of ask the question, why does it feel... I don't know if y'all feel like this ever. Does it sometimes feel weird to talk about sin to people who think that they're good people, but you know that they're sinners and they don't really realize that they're sinners in the biblical sense? Because it's almost like they compare themselves to axe murderers and they say, well, compared to that person, I'm a pretty good person. And it's almost like you think that they think that you're trying to say, you're really a horrible piece of garbage. And I'm here to tell you that you just need to be punched in the face. Like that, that may be what sometimes we think people think we're actually saying. Also, it can get awkward because if we talk about sin, the human reaction is to point fingers towards other people, isn't it? So often we're scared because somebody's going to turn right around and say, well, if I'm a sinner, doesn't that mean that you're a sinner? And we say... Yes, there's sinner saved by grace. Are you saved by grace? It is just one of those things that I just put three reasons here. This is just a little discussion on why it's sometimes awkward to talk about sin. Um, many preachers actually ignore sin. Okay, and here's here's something I challenge you to do with a lot of, even, even on Christian radio, um, not all, but a lot of teaching that is on there, a lot of, Christian teaching or preaching that's on Christian TV may reference sin. But if you just reference something without really defining it, it's kind of like in a relationship to where you know something is wrong but nobody ever brings up specifically what it is to talk about the problem and then work it out. It's just kind of like we know that there's this vague fuzzy thing that we're not okay with. Now if we went back years ago... A lot of times preachers went, what is sin? What is sin compared to? It is compared to God. So often in a lot of churches today, um, liberal denominations, I've had conversations, for example, um, with with one ministry student of another denomination that is, by its own admission, very liberal, uh, saying, you know what? He said, I don't like the wrath of God. So I don't talk about it. I like the love of God, so when I teach and when I preach I never speak about the wrath of God but I always speak about the love of God response it's like preaching salvation and not preaching uh, surrender hmm okay good my response was to that is say well it's one thing to say we're not really sure what the wrath of God is we're going to try to study and find that out right but it's another thing altogether to say, I'm going to arbitrarily, because I'm the boss, I'm Thomas Jefferson with the scissors, I'm going to cut out those parts of the Bible that I don't like because they make me uncomfortable, and I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of edit God. And so what people hear is not what God says, but it's God through my filter that filters out what I don't like about God, which is very dangerous. So in our world today, even people who have been to church for years may not have ever had sin really explained. And for those of us who who grew up in biblical churches, it's kind of a given, right? Like sin is, you know, so forth and so on. But a lot of times they they ignore it. Um, Number two, would you say that this may be the case? Christians often excuse it. Richard, Richard hacked into the computer at night. He knew where this was going. Yeah, and I just want to be honest. There is the human tendency, and there have been those times in my lives, my life, I only have, have one, not lives, but, but to where I, like Jerry Clower said, he said, I was, I was driving down the road arguing with Jerry about not doing what Jerry wanted to do, even though he knew it was wrong where you kind of wrestle with yourself, and when you do something wrong, there's the tendency to give excuses for that, right? I mean, think about arguments within the family or within the home. They were the one who started it, but boy, did we respond with pride? Did we respond with a lack of love? Did we respond with no humility? But it's like, well, they started it, and it's just the human excuses. So in our society, a lot of times, because... And I can say this, I'm a preacher, because we don't do it, because it's easy as a pastor and preacher to get scared thinking that if we talk about the hard stuff, it's gonna offend people. And if people are offended, then they won't come back, right? And if people don't come back, then the church doesn't quote unquote do well, which reflects upon you as a pastor, which says that you're a bad pastor in your failure of life. But the better question to ask is do I, as a pastor, do pastors do we truly love people? Or do we just use people to build up our own self-esteem? To say, look how many people come to listen to me on a Sunday. So it's a big, big question. But I think all of that has to do with society has no reference for it. Like you mentioned, Richard, so many people today, well, let's talk about uh, committing adultery or fornication together, uh, living together before a person is married. Or if they're still married, they move out and, and live with someone else. Um, that's really in our society's eyes not a big deal. Have y'all realized that? By, by and large, it's kind of this. Well, as long as you love each other, that's fine. I just want you to love each other. Like parents will tell their kids, I, "I I want you to stay, save sex for a committed relationship." They won't say marriage for a committed relationship. So what, what happens is that we live in this world that makes excuses for it and, and doesn't talk about it and then really has no reference for it except for the conscience. Because it's, it's, Have y'all found this out too? When you talk to people who are living in a life of deep, deep sin and when you talk to them about it, they may take a while, but they quietly with kind of not looking you in the eye nod their head and admit what I'm doing is wrong. They may not have sat through a study like this, but they've got the conscience. So, just to let you all know that when you talk to people about, about the gospel, about sin, it's going to be awkward, even if every preacher spoke about it, even if every Christian was on their A-game, and even if we had somewhat of a Christian society, because we all have a heart that is inclined to ourself. So, if you've ever felt that way, I just want to hopefully be of encouragement to y'all that you may feel awkward when you talk about this. It's always going to be awkward. Always. Even if somebody, God brings somebody who's broken to you and they're just ready to get saved right there, it may be like, what do I do? I don't want to mess this up. But um, Y'all have any comments on this? Mm. Stuff. You know, it's like uh, my children and grandchildren. You know, we get along fine and everything like that. But when they need correcting, they need correct. Good know, point. I never did have to whip my, two, my daughter and son, but one time But I told them, I said, "You know, that don't say it where it's going to hurt me worse than it does you." Mm. That's a lie. I'm going to burn y'all up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm going to burn y'all up. <laughs> Maybe you and my, my mom went to the same class of child rearing because she'd come in and say, I'm going to tear y'all up. It will not burn you, you up, it's tear That's good. Man. Wow. Well, apparently you did a good job because it took my parents a long time and a lot of stinkings to get through. But, uh, but that, that is true. And I, I, we, if we had time tonight, we could talk about accountability in the New Testament. And in the New Testament because there's a brotherhood and a sisterhood and a loving family relationship within a church it is this is really weird in modern church culture but we are expected to be able to not be Mr. or Mrs. Holy Spirit but in love point out a serious serious flaw in the life of a believer who continues to live a life of sin paul called names like when paul composed first and second corinthians It was so when they received the letter, it was read out loud in church. And he's calling names. Specifically in the one case of the man who was in deep, deep, deep sexual sin, he said, deliver his body over to Satan so that his soul may be saved. In other words, God would chastise that person and discipline that person to break them so that they would repent. So, confrontation and, and you know, letting people know, like you said, some people call it tough love, that is never punitive to punish people, but it's always to restore them. But here's, here's how Millard Erickson defines sin. He says, sin is any lack of conformity. Um, by the way, I don't encourage you to uh, memorize this and quote this at people who you're talking to because they may tune out. But since we're here, hardcore Wednesday night, we're going to just go through it. Uh, sin is any lack of conformity, active or passive. Uh, Dr. Kennedy always said that there are sins of commission that we do that we shouldn't and sins of omission, things that we should do, but we don't. To the moral law of God. This may be a matter of act, thought, or inner disposition. And this is a great point because a lot of people think that if I haven't done such and such, then I'm okay. But God sees into the thoughts. And that's a convicting thought for every single person. So basically sin is a distortion of the good. And we're going to look through a few pictures here. Um, If you want to mark this, I think it should be on your sheet. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Bible says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you want to make a note in your Bibles or smartphones or whatever. Um, Verse 17, when it speaks of the world is passing away, think of, uh, Dr. David Allen said, think of like a Monopoly game. That everything that you gain during that Monopoly game, once the game is finished, all of it is taken away, put into the drawer and placed in the closet and forgotten about. The world and its luster passing away, contrary to whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is, I hope this part is going to be really helpful. Um, I had fun, uh, trying to find some pictures for this. But uh, what sin does and what Satan desires to do is to distort and twist our good desires that God has given us. For example, um, the desire to enjoy things. Is the desire to eat a good meal in itself sin? No, right? God told him, I've created every green herb, every type of food for you to eat and to, to enjoy. Here's the thing, God is not lame because God could have done it like the Matrix, right? Remember that... Oatmeal stuff that they would eat had no taste, but it had everything necessary for them to live, just bland, boring, kinda of like the Jetsons when they just take take a pill. You know, he said the tur- toast is a little burned today. Like, but God gave us food. And food is good, right? Unless it's cooked by meat. So um, the desire to enjoy things, but but how, how that becomes sin is it begins to be the lust of the flesh. And secondly, the desire to obtain things, the lust of the eyes, is it a bad thing to want to succeed in life? No, not at all. Because so, some people think, well, if I get really driven, then that means that I'm automatically going to be arrogant. Well, that's not the case. We should, I think especially for students and you know or grandkids. Speak life into them, to, you know, study, do the best job you can. If you go into like a you know, work-with-your-hands job, be the best that you can be for the glory of God, right? Um, and number three, the desire to do things, the pride of life. And here's a few uh, illustrations. Desire to enjoy food. It's a good God-given desire. When it's twisted, it becomes gluttony to we don't Eat to live, we live to eat. We gain comfort from food that we should gain comfort from God. Another one would be like uh, the lust of the flesh, the desire for a spouse, a man for a woman, a woman for a man. That is a good God-given desire. I've talked to some guys in student ministry and they're like, man, I'm, I'm having problems with my thought life, Jeff. It's just like I, I think about girls all the time. I'm like, well, that's... That's one less problem that we have to deal with. At least you're thinking about girls, okay? That's not, that's not bad. That's a good, God-given desire to have a family. But what Satan does is want to do, take that in the wrong way, and the wrong time, and it becomes very destructive, right? Like, like sex within marriage is a God-ordained thing. It is honored by God. But when it's taken out of that, it's destructive. And so, once again, sin is a twisting of good desires. Um, Another one would be the desire to provide for your family or be industrious, to be a winner, to succeed, to to climb the ladder. That's a good thing. But where that can get twisted into sin is to where we begin to define ourselves by what we have gained. We don't give glory to God, and not only do we not give glory to God, we think that what we have is God because that's what we think about, that's what we worry about, and that's what truly provides satisfaction. So that's another example of how something good can turn into something terrible. Uh, the desire to conquer and succeed, this could be like the pride of life. Um, that's a good thing to want to do things with your life. Um, we, talk, we had one sermon a while ago, Bucket List. Y'all remember that? Wow, I'm impressed. Um, But things that people want to do before they die, like goals, as opposed to, I just don't care about doing anything with my life. Like some guys my age, I may get a part-time job, I may not. I think right now I'm going to turn on the TV and then take a nap. And then when I get up, eat, you know, just like that type of deal. Um, That can become sin when it changes into arrogance over our accomplishments. Like Nebuchadnezzar, remember he looked out on Babylon, and he said something to the effect of, look at the great city Babylon that I have created by my own might and my own, power, my own power. It's just like all of these ways he was praising himself, that was an example of how the desire to succeed and to do well mutated into pride and arrogance. It's like the scripture says, uh, the pride of life. So Satan's tactic is that he does not try to create something new in us. This is a big misconception with people to where they think that um, we're basically good and that Satan comes and tries to make us be evil. Rather, he seeks to stir up and direct our God-given appetites at the wrong time or the wrong object. So here's the question Whose fault is it that there is sin in the world? Let's go to Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12, and we're going to try to work through verse number 12 through verse 21. Because here is the problem that is bugging a lot of people outside of Christianity. They think, well, if the Bible is true, and when one man sinned, Adam, and all, if his sin affected all of his descendants, then is that fair? Right? That's a legit question that people have coming from outside of Christianity. Is that fair? Now, in one sense, this is one way the Bible is brilliant. We are all actually in Adam. Biologically. As a lot of people say, no, no, I'm separate. Yeah, extended by some generations. But we were all in Adam. We were all a part of Adam. We are not separate, completely, period, quotation marks from Adam. We were all in him. So this right here, I would encourage you to to walk people through that. So here here we go. Um, Verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to how many men? All men, because all sinned. Verse 13. For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What the Bible is saying here is that sin was sin before God ever put out the Ten Commandments, right? They had a conscience. They knew who he was. In verse 15, here, before we jump into verse 15, what the Bible is saying here, what Paul is arguing, is that because of Adam's mistake, we are all eventually under the judgment of God. That's not a very good prospect, is it? It's like, because of what he did back there, I was affected today. How was that fair? Notice how God turns the tables here in verse 15. But, by the way, anytime you see a but, B-U-T, in the New Testament, it is very, very, very important, especially in the book of Romans. But the free gift is not like the trespass. In other words, Jesus is not like Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for how many? Many. For many, because there's going to be a lot of folks who are going to eventually be saved. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. They were kicked out of Eden, the earth was cursed. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, a.k.a. a relationship with God. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what the Bible is saying here is that you can believe that Adam caused, brought sin into the world, but what God did is he brought through Jesus an antidote to sin for all who are in the world. Um, and then in verse number 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. In other words, to show people that sin was real and that it was against God. But where sin increased or where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Amen? So that, so here's the purpose clause. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. And what does that do? Leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's like God is stepping back, allowing Adam and Eve to have the choice. They make the wrong one. The whole planetary system of morality is jacked up, twisted, perverted. But God comes in and provides a sacrifice to cover the mistake of sin that passed every single person. And so here's, here's the outline. Um, that we'll, we, we walk through these verses. Um, there's six of these. So, uh, sin came through one person, right? Affected everybody. Number two. Death came in the world through sin. Sin is what opened Pandora's box. Number three, grace also came through one person. You see how this is connecting number three to number one? Number number four? True life came through grace. Go back to verse 17 here, when it says the last phrase of that verse, and the free gift of righteousness reign, or uh, we could say rule in life through the one man Jesus Christ. When we see the word life there, it's contrasting it with death. So this is amazing that true life came through grace. But grace came to erase the effects of sin. And sin brought death. So grace is an antidote to to death and what it brings. Number five, grace is stronger than sin. Number six, the law made made sin overwhelmingly sinful. Number seven, sin reigns in death, but grace reigns in Christ who gives eternal life. So this is where we as Christians can affirm that every person is born with a sin nature, then that person sins because they want to. They're still guilty, but God is providing a way for them to be forgiven. So not only does Jesus cover the mistakes of Adam, but Jesus is able to extend that grace to all people who were born in sin and who have lived a life of sin. And um, I had a few... Walk through these, and I've got a little illustration that we'll walk through from um, Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. Uh, here's the objection Is God just, is God righteous in allowing a quote unquote passed down sin nature? I mean, couldn't it have been that God would just make each person, they would have their choices as Adam would? Um, if not, then these would also be true. First, If no other person's sin could affect us, then neither could their love or their blessing. People who who get really torn up about the fact that grace or that sin came through Adam want to say, well, I should be able to decide my own destiny. And so it would be like we're all insulated from each other. If his sin, his choice, which was made in the world that we live in, affected us, then also we could say, because of the way God set up the world, that our love and our blessing and our encouragement could also reach other people. Secondly, no one could receive forgiveness from others. Now think about that. If God set up a world to where one person's sin would never affect another's, then that means that there would be no relationship and we could never gain forgiveness or ask or receive forgiveness from another person. Every person would be utterly alone. And then the biggest thing is if no one, and this is so huge, and I, I think it's very helpful for people who have a problem with the Bible's teaching on, on the sin nature. If God created a world in which we were totally insulated from, from the choices of other people that would affect us, then that means that we could never have or receive a Savior. Because isn't that salvation? That Jesus came and his goodness is applied to me. His death is applied to me. His forgiveness and his life and his grace is applied to me. So this is God allowing his creatures to make choices. But going above and beyond and providing something that's going to fix eventually all their wrong choices. So here you, you're able to kill two birds with one stone. But um, have you all seen The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? Read, read the book. Um, It's a really, really great, it's a kid's book by C.S. Lewis, and they made it into a movie several years ago. Um, But this last text, I wanted to illustrate it by this book. Um, It's got a lot of imagery in there about the gospel. And the story goes, uh, Edmund and his um, brother and two sisters, they go into this wardrobe, and then they enter this magical land. And in this magical land, he meets the witch, the white witch, who is symbolic of Satan. And he's basically the one who starts the ball rolling of the real big sin wagon in the, the land of Narnia. So she begins to tell him that she's the one who's uh, basically God and that she's the queen of the country. He believes her and, he's, and he betrays his brothers and his sisters because he had an argument with them. And then he um, goes into her, her uh, he's imprisoned in her castle there I, Chapter 5, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. All people were under sin, all people were under death. When Edmund was there as a captive, that was, that was him. So what happened is that the, the, the lion, Aslan, is a picture of Jesus, the true king of the country. And so what happened was Aslan gave his life so that Edmund wouldn't have to be executed. And verse 15, chapter 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass, the sin of Adam, the sin of Edmund, was all built on selfishness, right? It's to get for me. When Aslan gave his life in the book, when Jesus gave his life in reality, it was the opposite of selfishness. It was selflessness. In the book, the witch thought that she had won, but the next morning, he had arisen from the dead. And the stone table that he was sacrificed upon was was broken two. and I just think of the verse fifteen: For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace that of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And as it goes, the battle is already taking place. And so Aslan goes, and there's the stone table there, and uh, he goes and he enlists all the, the rest of the uh, the good guys. And comes back, and uh, this is after um, the battle here. Just a picture of this lion looking into the eyes of a guilty kid. The kid knew that his sin had caused the death of the rightful king of the country. And when when they took that that shot in the movie, um, I just thought, "That's, that's me, and that's Jesus. That's me who should have died, but here's the one who did no wrong, but stepped in and took the punishment for me. <clears throat> and it says in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And in the book, Aslan the great lion offers his forgiveness to Edmund, and Edmund becomes one of the greatest heroes in Narnia. It's a Seven series book. And uh, I've actually, this is pretty bad. I've read it seven times uh, since I was in high school. That may talk about my nerd status. But it's got a lot of great, great spiritual insights. And so I hope that this helps bring home um, the message. And our final thought is just the application to to do this. To use the grace that you've been given to be a channel of grace to others. Never stop sharing the gospel. Don't give up on people. Because at one time or another... We were all Edmund, but because of Jesus, we can be saved.